thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Evidence has emerged that there may be a silent epidemic in deer in America. How worrying is the circulation of COVID-19 among animals in the wild? Hello and welcome to Babbage from The Economist, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukier, an editor at The Economist, and also coming up on today's show. Can problems in the gut microbiome cause autism? New research suggests the relationship is more complicated than that, with important implications for medical science. Though there is indeed a connection between microbiome health and autism, the causal arrow actually needs to be flipped on its head. And earlier this month, the father of cognitive behavioral therapy, Aaron Beck, died at age 100. His daughter, the psychiatrist Judith Beck, tells us how he turned the world of psychiatry upside down. Over the years, it was just undeniable that CBT's concepts were valid and that it was an effective treatment. But first, almost two years since its first detection, the coronavirus's origin remains a mystery. And while much has been said about a few prime suspects... It's an animal you've probably never heard of, but it may be at the center of the coronavirus crisis. It's called a pangolin. Scientists largely agree it came from animals. It's thought most likely that that animal was a bat, and either it was transferred directly from a bat to humans or via an intermediary animal. Just how SARS-CoV-2 spilled over from wild animals into humans has yet to be identified. But what has become clear is that a spillover can travel in both directions. Early on in the pandemic, this spillback idea was merely a hypothetical concern. Yet later in 2020, the World Health Organization reported that the virus had migrated from humans to mink. Mammal species like mink are very good hosts in a sense, and the virus can can evolve within those species, especially if they're large numbers packed closely together. The governments of Denmark, the Netherlands and Spain culled 18 million of the animals in response. Earlier this month, the first pet dog was also diagnosed with the disease in Britain. More worryingly, scientists presented evidence that the virus is circulating widely in white-tailed deer in North America. New research suggests SARS-CoV-2 might be lurking in other animal populations too, waiting to spill back into humans. And that could be yet another obstacle in the road out of the pandemic. When a virus travels into another species from us, that virus is now being exposed to new immune systems and new cells, and this can drive the virus to evolve in new and dangerous ways. 
Matt Kaplan is a science correspondent for The Economist. And then if the nightmare scenario occurs and we have what we call spill back, where the virus spills from the animal back into humans, we can have ourselves a new variant on our hands, which may potentially be resistant to the vaccines that we're using or have new unexpected symptoms. It could be more harmful. And recently, some research came out that might help identify which species are at greatest risk of catching the virus and becoming reservoirs for COVID-19. Can you tell me more about that? In 2020, as the virus was breaking out and starting to cause mass disruption, Barbara Hahn at the Cary Institute of Ecosystem Studies in New York started looking at animals that might be potential reservoirs for the disease. And the answer to that question really revolved around what's known as the ACE2 receptor, which is the receptor in the human body that the virus likes to attach to, to enter cells and initiate infection. ACE2 is associated with managing blood pressure. So they were curious as to which animals have ACE2 receptors that are similar to ours. And what do those researchers find? So we don't have mappings for the ACE2 receptors in lots of species because you need to look at the molecular structure of the ACE2 receptor in detail to understand whether or not SARS-CoV-2 can bind to it. And they were only able to find this information for 142 mammals. Now, that's pretty good going, but it's not anywhere near the 5,000 plus mammals that we as humans have a lot of contact with. So they looked at these first 142 mammals and they used modeling technology to look at the virus, to look at the receptor and say, can this thing bind? And they found a lot of things were very well expected. So mink, for example, have ACE2 receptors that the virus can bind to very effectively. Another non-surprise were the gorillas and macaques and chimpanzees. They're very similar to us. So it makes a lot of sense that they would have ACE2 receptors that are very similar to ours. Dogs and cats, which we've seen a lot of reports suggesting have caught the disease, they also have ACE2 receptors that are able to bind. Cats look particularly problematic, which explains why we've seen lions and tigers and zoos even picking it up. And what about all the other thousands of species beyond the 142 mammals? There was plenty of evidence in the past that the way you live your life will control what the molecular structure of things like ACE2 receptors in your body look like. If you have a similar lifestyle, if you're related to an animal that can catch the disease, then the chances are high that you will be able to catch the disease too. And so the researchers looked at every trait under the sun that they could collect on mammal species, breadth of diet, metabolic rate, age of sexual maturity, everything. And then they developed a machine learning system that then analyzed 5,000 mammal species uh, to work out whether or not their ACE2 receptors would be likely to get bound to the virus. And this process revealed 540 species that were very likely vulnerable to the virus and thus much more of a concern for developing into reservoirs for the disease. So what kind of animals are we talking about here? As expected, primates of all shapes and sizes. Bats, again, not too much of a surprise since we suspected this virus came from a bat, although that's not been confirmed yet. The surprises really came from animals like the rice field rat and the Malayan field rat. And that's really worrying because these rodents are often fed upon by domestic cats, which then quite literally bring the rat into the house and can either catch the disease themselves before giving it to people or encourage the virus on from the rat 
to spill back into people and create all kinds of issues. This seems quite worrying. It's really worrying. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. Unfortunately, they flagged dozens of species that look like they'd be very serious viral reservoirs. These included white-lipped peccaries, red foxes, raccoon dogs, an Asian antelope called the Nilgai. All of these animals are either farmed or hunted and therefore have lots of close contact with people. All of them look like they're quite vulnerable to the virus. Worse, water buffalo. There are 130 million of these animals on the planet. They're used extensively around the globe for milk and also as beasts of burden. If the virus were to create a reservoir in these animals, if it hasn't done already, the virus would be in a pivotal position to then jump back into people because of all the close contact that exists. So the risk that's posed by that species alone seems huge. What you describe sounds like very bad news for humans. What can we do to protect ourselves from SARS-CoV-2 when there are all these potential reservoirs? Yeah, the news is not good, Ken. Transfers from animals to humans are likely to drive evolution of this virus, and that's going to force us to have to work that much harder to counter the threat. But knowing is half the battle here. If we can identify which species are likely to be reservoirs for this horrible disease, we can say, okay, look, people, those of you who have close contact with water buffalo, could you please wear a mask or have governments take action and say, okay, water buffalo farmers must be vaccinated as a priority so that they are less likely to shed the virus and transmit it to the water buffalo in the first place. Um, We can also take action by monitoring these populations more closely to identify whether or not a reservoir has started to arise in another species. And once that occurs, we can say, okay, right, we've got an issue with the species. We need to be really, really careful now and not let it spill back into the human population and create that inevitable nightmare scenario. Matt, it is always fascinating to talk to you. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Ken. Thanks for having me. Think of a human being not just as an individual, but as an ecosystem. The body is teeming with masses of bacteria. A healthy adult harbors some 100 trillion of the microscopic critters in the gut alone. The microbiome, as a person's bacteria are collectively known, helps digest food and regulates the immune system. Imbalances in the bacteria population have been linked to diseases as diverse as rheumatoid arthritis, diabetes, and even Alzheimer's disease. Earlier this year, I spoke with Dr. Tim Sampson of Emory University School of Medicine about the microbiome's connection with Parkinson's disease. We are finding that the microbiomes from people who have Parkinson's disease, as well as particular bacteria that are enriched in people who have Parkinson's disease, that they promote some of the similar pathologies in our mouse model that we see in in Parkinson's. So perhaps some microbes within the gut may be triggering or exacerbating the disease effects. In recent years, though, one idea in particular has intrigued researchers, that certain mixtures of gut microbiomes may trigger autism. 
Scientists have been grappling with this question of whether an unbalanced microbiome does cause autism for some time now. Gilad Ahmed is a science correspondent for The Economist. New research has offered a reasonably conclusive answer to that question. Now, first of all, why would there be a link between the microbiome and autism? So the first connection is an observational one. Children on the autism spectrum often have digestive problems, which suggests a link between the condition and gut health. And building on from that, all sorts of experimental studies in recent years have shown that the diversity of gut microbiomes in children on the autistic spectrum is less rich than in non-autistic children. And a couple of studies have even claimed that certain types of bacteria are overrepresented or absent. And this has led some to suggest that these imbalances in the microbiome might be a trigger for autism, which is a bit of a jump. Uh, but it's a logical enough one, because bacteria in the gut can produce enzymes and chemicals which have an influence all over the body. So the idea that they can affect the brain in this particular way is a hypothesis well worth considering. And you mentioned that there's some new research that provides an answer. Yes. A new study led by uh, Jacob Grattan at the Matter Research Institute of the University of Queensland shows that though there is indeed a connection between microbiome health and autism, the causal arrow actually needs to be flipped on its head. And to the best of his understanding, autism affects the gut flora, not the other way around. How did the research team come to that conclusion? So Dr. Grattan and his colleagues embarked on their project in 2016. They were trying to cut through what they saw as the hype that surrounds findings in this area, because parents of children on the autism spectrum are often desperate for support, and that makes them vulnerable to conclusions that are perhaps stated with too much certainty. One of the things they focused on was they tried to use as large a sample size as possible. That would allow them to offer a, a robust statistical response to the studies that had come before. And they made use of two large Australian databases that contained stool samples and dietary information from 247 children, which included those diagnosed with autism, their non-autistic siblings, and also unrelated non-autistic controls. And while they found no evidence that microbial diversity has any impact on autism, they did find that the two were connected. That's because children on the autism spectrum tend to have more restricted diets, often because the sensory experiences associated with new foods can be overwhelming and they prefer familiarity. And this lack of diversity in diet translates to a lack of diversity in gut microbes, which can in turn cause gastrointestinal distress. What did the earlier studies miss? So previous studies tended to have one of two failings. They were either conducted with very small sample sizes, which can lead to distorted results, or they weren't even conducted in humans. Some of the strongest evidence for the autism microbiome connection comes from experiments in mice. And that's problematic because mice can't have autism. Instead, researchers have to find mice that behave in ways that they feel corresponds to the behavior of children on the autism spectrum. And that's been controversial for some time. And this new study suggests that these behaviors in mice are actually very poor analogs because the conclusions don't seem to translate to humans. Um, but I should make very clear that the debate is far from over. The fact that 250 children counts as a large sample size in this field indicates how much more research is needed. We may still find these conclusions being refined for years and years to come. Now, a couple of years ago, we interviewed Dr. Rosa Kramalik-Brown of Arizona State University on the show. She's a pioneer on the research of the gut microbiome and autism, and this new study seems to be at odds with her work. 
There is a tension there, I agree. Dr. Kretmanek-Brown has run experiments in children using fecal transplants, which are exactly what they sound like. They can be thought of as reforesting the scrublands of your gut. And she found that they produce positive effects on the behavioural traits of children on the autism spectrum, as well as on gastrointestinal symptoms. Now, whether there is really a contradiction here remains to be seen, because it is possible that fecal transplants rebalance the microbiome, reduce discomfort and thereby improve behavior without actually affecting the causes of the condition. So she's now undertaking more rigorous clinical trials to further test her findings. And she and Dr. Grattan and everyone else uh, with an interest in this field are going to be paying very close attention to, to see what they reveal. Now, an interesting dimension to all of this is that many people are going to look at the fact that there's a revision in what's been known and say that, hey, the science got it wrong and the media got it wrong. But another way of looking at it is that this is, in fact, the hallmark of science to put out a hypothesis, have it challenged, and change it in the search for some form of truth. Yeah, I, I, I'd agree with that, Ken. I think one of the reasons I really wanted to write about this story is because I had covered Dr. Kadmanik Brown's earlier work. And so I felt that when there is new research that sort of casts doubt on conclusions that had come before then it's important to revisit them. Science isn't about saying, this is the conclusion, the end, close the book, put it on the shelf, never open it again. Findings are constantly being revisited and they're being analysed in ever more robust ways with ever larger sample sizes as the world changes, as people change. I think it's valuable to remember that there's an element of uncertainty that always accompanies findings, even the ones that are trumpeted most loudly. And I look forward to coming on the podcast again to explain why I've been wrong before. That's very rare. <laughs> but we look forward to having you on the show again. Hilad, thank you so much. Thanks, Ken. And as everyone knows, at Babbage, we love data. In fact, we love data so much that we're collecting a little bit more of it. The Economist podcast team has launched a new listener survey. This is your big chance to tell us what you think of the show and other Economist podcasts. And that helps us bring you better audio journalism. To participate, just go to economist.com slash Babbage survey. Once again, economist.com slash Babbage survey. All one word, Babbage survey. Please do take part. And don't forget to tell them that I sent you. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Earlier this month, the pioneering psychiatrist Aaron Beck died at the age of 100. He was known as the father of cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT, having developed the treatment in the 1960s and 70s. The major principle is that the way an individual perceives his reality will influence the way he behaves and the way he feels 
and the way he approaches his problems. Consequently, if he misperceives reality, then he's going to have aberrant feelings, he's going to behave in a maladaptive way, and he's going to have difficulty in solving his problems. His career spanned more than seven decades and transformed the field of mental health. CBT is a relatively short-term, present-focused kind of psychotherapy that has been demonstrated in over 2,000 research trials to be effective for a whole range of psychiatric disorders and psychological problems and also medical conditions with psychological components. Dr. Judith Beck is a therapist and president of the Beck Institute, a charity which provides training for CBT. She is also the late Dr. Beck's daughter. Research has shown that it's effective for depression, bipolar disorder, eating disorders, substance abuse, personality disorders, and even in adapted forms for serious mental health illnesses such as schizophrenia. Now, everyone sort of knows the cliche of the Freudian analyst in which the person goes into a room on a couch, is looking up into the ceiling, not facing the therapist, and is told to sort of talk about their childhood. How does cognitive behavioral therapy differ? Well, it is quite different, but you should know that my dad actually started out as a psychoanalyst, had patients free associating on the couch while he made kind of expert interpretations. But he was really a scientist at heart, and he decided that if psychoanalysis was to really gain currency in the scientific world, that its concepts would have to be validated by research. So he did a series of research studies that he was sure would show that the psychoanalytic ideas about depression were accurate. But he actually found the opposite, that his research did not validate the concepts that underlay psychoanalysis. And When he recognized that, he began to look for other ways of explaining and treating depression. And that's when he developed what he later called the cognitive model, that it's very important for us to be able to identify our distressing thoughts when we're feeling upset, depressed, anxious, angry, and so forth, and then to evaluate our thinking When we do that, we can think more realistically, and then we feel better emotionally, and we can usually behave in a way that's more in line with our values, our goals, our aspirations. What do you feel about being here? I'm very nervous. Mm -hmm. Anything else? Uh, My stomach is turning. Uh, I think my palms are starting to perspire a little bit. Mm -hmm. So one of the things we want to look at is to see whether this type of thinking that you do produces the types of effects, both psychologically in terms of the anxiety that you feel and also physically, the uh, funny feelings in your stomach and the sweaty palms and the choking sensation that you get. We wanna see if indeed the thinking produces the anxiety symptoms. Now, if the thinking isn't reasonable, if it's way out of line, you can correct the anxiety symptoms by correcting the thinking. For instance, it might very well be that it doesn't matter how you perform here. And if you could be convinced that it doesn't really matter, that it's my job rather than your job, then you wouldn't feel anxious anymore. That would help, yes. Uh Uh-huh. So let's look at it. Now, your father also worked with a patient uh, when the patient was extremely young, and that would be, of course, himself. Well, 
He broke his arm when he was about eight years old, and he developed sepsis, which was very serious at the time. He was hospitalized, and he wasn't expected to live, but thank goodness he did. And he then developed kind of a phobia of the smell of ether and the sight of blood. But he really wanted to go to medical school. And so I think what he did was to develop a series of exposures for himself where he would expose himself to the smell of ether and also to the sight of blood and remind himself consciously that he wasn't in any danger, that these were not dangerous sights and smells and that he would be okay. And so I think he was really using some of the tools of CBT on himself. CBT was a breakthrough. How much of a breakthrough was it in the world of psychiatry? And if it was such a breakthrough, why wasn't it immediately recognized as such? Well, it's interesting. I think CBT was really rejected by psychoanalysts because it challenged their worldview, their view of human nature, their view of what psychotherapy should be, and uh, probably found it quite threatening. His work was rejected by psychopharmacologists who really believed that every part of uh, mental illness had to do with something that needed to be corrected in the brain through medication. But over the years, the amount of research on CBT from all over the world just began to mount and mount and mount until it was just undeniable that CBT's concepts were valid and that it was an effective treatment. Today, How did you feel about what we covered today? I, I feel uh, very good about it mm-hmm. uh, because uh, I really have not been trying to combat the situation when I get depressed. Mm-hmm. I just kind of lay around the house, watch TV, have a beer, Coke, kind of lay around, lay around, wait for, wait till I get sleepy, mm-hmm. and then go to bed. Yeah. And hopefully when I wake up the next morning, I'll feel better. Sure. Well, how do you feel now? At the beginning of the interview, you said you were feeling very queasy and anxious. Yes. Which may have been related to the interview itself, but you also did look rather sad. How do you uh, feel right now? I feel good about myself, and uh, I feel that uh, we could continue this uh, conversation for another hour if we wanted to. Great. Well, thank you for coming in to see me. All right, thank you. Well. Now, some children rebel against their parents, and others follow in their footsteps. And it seems as if you've actually done that, becoming a CBT therapist yourself, while your father was the father of this form of psychiatry. So I wonder if you, as a dutiful daughter, also might have a rebellious streak. And I would ask, is there anything that you see as a practitioner that you think maybe your father missed? I don't think so. But he has said in recent years that he thinks he made a mistake when he was first starting out. My dad wrote a book, Cognitive Therapy of Depression, which was published in the late 1970s, and there was an entire chapter on the therapeutic relationship. But unfortunately, many CBT therapists don't recognize that. And he is sorry that he kind of assumed that all psychotherapists, no matter what their background was, would have been taught 
the really important counseling skills that Carl Rogers outlined. And so he didn't put a great emphasis on the therapeutic relationship until it came to working with people with personality disorders, because they really do require a certain spotlight right on the therapeutic relationship. Something else that he saw a little bit later was the work that he did in the last 10 or 12 years of his life. And he worked up until two days before he died. He was just so passionate about his work, which he called recovery-oriented cognitive therapy for individuals with serious mental health conditions like schizophrenia. And with these individuals, he and his colleagues at Beck Institute and elsewhere really focused on helping these people with serious mental health conditions have experiences in which they're helped to draw positive conclusions to help bolster their positive beliefs and thoughts. And so it's an interesting adaptation of CBT for a population that wouldn't normally respond to straightforward CBT. That's really interesting. Dr. Judith Beck, thank you very much. You're welcome. It's my pleasure. One of the points of cognitive therapy is to be humanistic and optimistic. And if you are, you're going to have a much happier life than otherwise. So that's what I would say is the secret. And you can learn optimism by deciding that you're going to look at the positive side of things. Because many things in life, perhaps most things, have either a positive or a negative. And you can look at the negative or you can focus on the positive element. And I, I, I noticed that in myself. Like if I want to go outside and get a lot of sunshine and it starts to rain, then I think, oh, that's great. Now I can go indoors and work on a paper. So I try to make a virtue of adversity, even when other people might consider this adverse. Thank you for listening to Babbage. While you're with us, a quick reminder about the listener survey. Just go to economist.com slash Babbage survey. All one word. The link is in the show notes. The producers are the fabulous Jason Hoskin, the amazing Abisoye Oshindairo, and the brilliant William Warren. The stupendous Nico Rofast mixed the program, and the executive producer is the exceptional Hannah Mourinho. I'm Kenneth Kukier, and in London, this is the always informative Economist. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live 
and move to the UK.